When I preached for Jason back on August 14th, Jan, my wife, was not here. And if you recall, I told some stories about how she didn't put on her name tag before uh, I preached one time, and she didn't know how good I was going to be. And she asked me if they found me competent at a competency hearing. And um, so we had a as my little granddaughter says, a chuckle. She says that instead of a laugh. But regardless of how I do, or you tell me I do, or I think I did, until Jan sort of tells me it's okay, I'm on kind of pins and needles. See, Jan and I have known each other since first grade. Our class picture sets on, the, on my uh, desk. And uh, uh, we uh, were in fourth grade together, and we've dated for 38 years. <laughs> so on Sunday night, after I got through preaching, I called her. And she said, how did it go? And I said, well, you know, they post those sermons at the, um, uh, on the church's website if you want to take a look at it. And she was kind of noncommittal. And so I talked to her on Monday night, and she didn't bring it up. Tuesday night, no mention. Thursday night, um, she still didn't mention it. And then on Friday night, she said, well, I watched your sermon. Well, I was anxious and eager, but I nonchalantly said, well, what did you think? She says, well, I decided I needed to be meaner to you. <laughs> she said, you need some new stories. So despite Jan always being in my life, Jan didn't always, uh, she didn't date me in high school. You would, um, she'd set me up with her best friend, and when we went off to college, she wouldn't always write back. She played pretty hard to get. Some of you have heard me tell this story, but after I was finally reeling her in, uh, I had one of those guy things, you know, where uh, some fair faucet haircut that was working at the flower shop next to the drugstore turned my head. And I, I came to her and I said, I think we ought to maybe date some other people. And she very calmly and quietly said, well, that's fine, but you won't be dating me. And that wasn't what I expected. You want to chuckle this morning? If you were getting a browning to talk about gentleness, which browning would you get? But instead you got me, and I am in a work in progress. Last year my colleagues persuaded me to go golfing against my better judgment. And uh, I hadn't played in years, and I'm not very good. And about the fourth round I was thoroughly bored and ready for the whole thing to be over. And when I went home I told Jan, I said, I just can't imagine a sport in which you don't run five yards and hit somebody as hard as they can. And after the NFL decided my football skills were not up to their level, I became a litigator. And nothing pleases me more, or did, to have some pompous expert on the stand and he asked to go to the bathroom three times during my cross-examination. I'm competitive. So I have to work on gentleness. Before gentleness can be a goal, we have to have some sense of what it is. The first sentence of Galatians 5.22 has been our scripture for this entire lesson series. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes these fruits began to sound the same or at least overlap. Professor Wayne Meeks of Yale reminds us that verse 22 is a catalog of virtues followed by following a catalog of vices in verses 19 and following. These catalogs were the simplest of the standard forms of moral teaching in the Hellenistic world, including Judaism. They were sometimes placed, as they are here, in sort of a dualistic framework, the way of life, the way of darkness. From the Qumran to the Didache, you see these sort of contrasting uh, frameworks. Jason sent out his e-newsletter around Thanksgiving, and it says, Sunday's message, November 27th, core virtue, gentleness. When I read that, I panicked. That's my lesson. Either I have to be here the day after Thanksgiving, which I wasn't planning to be, or someone else is doing my topic. So I contacted Jason. It was a typo. But I looked at this page, and I wondered how many looked at it and saw the typo or thought that we would be covering kindness, gentleness, goodness, and love all on Sunday, or that they were all really the same thing. So this raises two questions. First, the Greeks have a list, the Jews have a list, George Washington had a book of rules of civility that he did when he was 16 that he copied from his schoolboy exercises. I used to make my boys read that. What then is especially important or Christian about the list or catalog in Galatians? And second, how does gentleness differ from the other virtues? Let's talk about the second question first. I work hard on self-control. When I was a lawyer, I did not like judges who would come to court and be mean to the lawyers, be impatient, yell. I always said if I got to be a judge, I would try not to do that. I would try to be courteous to all. I would try to be polite, patient. I get up in the morning and I pray about the lawyers and parties that I'm going to see. I try to visualize them by name, and particularly the difficult ones. Try to think, how am I going to deal with them? How am I going to lower my blood pressure? I pray that I'll be kind to each, that I'll try to be humble to all. I pray that I'll be patient, not get that Hobbes voice that Jan says I sometimes get. Many of you know my courtroom deputy. She's been with me for 26 years. She is a Christian. She knows what I'm trying to do. And of course, I sit on the bench and she sits below me and she has a big computer screen. And sometimes, when she doesn't like what I'm doing, she will put up there, you do not want to be remembered for this. <laughs> or stop. The lawyer has stopped talking. She is not breathing. <laughs> that is self-control, or at least an attempt at it. But let's say I go back to the vestibule, and I'm unzipping my robe, and I say, wasn't that lawyer a jerk? Or I go back to chambers, and in front of Kayon and clerks, I say, that was stupid. Or let's say I manage to get home before I explode about everybody and say to Jan, 
how crazy the world was. To the bar, to the public, to the lawyers, maybe even to the clerks in Kayon, I maintained self-control because I didn't blow up in the courtroom. But nobody, clerks, Kayon, Jan, are going to call that gentle. If I want to be like a Christian, I don't get to be just self-controlled in public. I have to be gentle to all, all time. Christians don't get that luxury, that self-indulgence of letting our hair down. I know I shouldn't probably be saying that. Letting our hair down and sharing with a few people how we really feel about other people and the world. Paul said this in Philippians. He said, let your gentleness be evident to all. Not just the public, not just the lawyers in the courtroom, not just my clerks or Kayon, but to Jan. Paul says something else. The Lord is near. And he may have been saying that in an eschatological sense, but he also could have been saying, I need to be gentle even when it's just me and God. With my thoughts, with my eyes, with what I listen to, I need to be just as disciplined, self-controlled, gentle as when I am public. If I can do that, I am convinced that whatever definition of gentleness we use, it would fall in it. Let me give another example. Let's say somebody goofs up. Um, now the old Jim might blow up. Jan might say, old Jim was last week. But let's say I get a handle on my, my anger and I control it better. Again, that's self-control. But what if I just sit there and fume? What if I give them the silent treatment? What if I frown or parse my lips? Again, that's self-control. But it's not gentle. What if I can mutter out of these lips? It's okay. We're all busy. You're still cute. That would be gentle. I got a long way to go from transitioning from self-control to gentleness. Gentleness is sometimes silence, not speaking. Sometimes it's a quiet word. Sometimes it's a smile. Let's go back to that first question. What is different about Christian gentleness from my good atheist friend's gentleness? Or George Washington's manners, or rules of civility? Remember that catalog of virtues that we looked at in Galatians? Look at how it starts. The fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say the fruit of Jim Browning. It doesn't say Jim Browning's virtues or manners. These are not mine at all. They are the Spirit's. 
And that is exactly what Paul is saying when you turn back to chapter 2, when, we, when we're in that what we call theological portion, before we get to the, what we call the ethical portion. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Oswald Chambers says this, the Spirit of God does in me internally what Jesus Christ did for me externally. So how do I become gentle? Quit trying to be gentle. Instead, do what Jesus said. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Not just money, not just clothing, not just housing. All these things will be added to you. Gentleness will be added. You don't become gentle. The Greeks didn't say that. The Jews didn't say that. George Washington didn't say that. So what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Our own traditions, Professor Carl Holliday at Emory says, the behavior characterized as the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, are behaviors that occur with the death of the flesh in Galatians 5.24, which is in some sense analogous to Christ's own death. See, the opposite of these vices is not gentleness, but it's the death of ourselves. Our biggest foe to being gentle is trying to be perfectly gentle. Paul says in verse 24, those who are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, not just the desires for sex, not just the desires for money, but even the desires to be perfect, perfectly gentle. Listen to what Chambers says again about this. He says, once we come to understand that natural moral excellence opposes or counteracts surrender to God, we bring our soul into the center of its greatest battle. The cost to your natural life is not just one or two things, but everything. And listen to this next verse. Beware of refusing to go to the funeral of your own independence. We just don't have the luxury of saying, that's just the way I am. Some of you know that I like to get away for a few days to go to the monasteries in our state up at Abiquiu and Pecos. Some of you do that too. But sometimes I can't get away for days. So I'll go over to Richard Rohr's Contemplative Center in the South Valley and rent out a college, cottage for the afternoon. And Father Rohr says this. He says, my life is not about me. Really? My life is not about me? He says, no, it's about God. When you look at the dictionary definition of the English word gentle, the first couple are the ones you would expect, considerate, not harsh. But I'm particularly intrigued by the third preferred definition. Easily managed or handled. A gentle horse. New Testament talks about servants, bond servants. If I want to be gentle, 
I need to be docile and tame to that Spirit's indwelling in me. But let's look a little closer at the history of the English word gentle. It's the old English gentile, which we got from the, from the Normans who brought the old French, who brought the Latin. And it was someone who was well-born. It was noble. People were born gentle. We are crucified. And when we are born again out of that water, we are of noble birth. We are well-born. And we are gentle. So what is my role in becoming gentle? As a contemplative, one of my favorite mystics is St. Teresa of Avila. And here is what she says. She says, this is what I would like for all of us to strive for, friends. We should engage in prayer, thirst for it even. Not because it feels good, but because it gives us the strength we need to be of service. There is no reason to blaze any new trails. We'll only waste valuable time. The notion of acquiring these favors from God by a different path than the one Christ and His disciples followed may be interesting, may be an interesting one to ponder, but you can forget about it. So what did, the, what did Jesus and the disciples do? Six things I'd like to briefly say will make us gentle. First prayer. Lots of it, all of the time. Pray three things. First, be thankful. When I am being thankful, instead of looking around at what others have, I'm more gentle. I covet less. I keep my eyes looking up. Comparing myself to God rather than comparing myself to others. Second, pray for others. I find it hard to be harsh to others if I have prayed for them that morning. And third, when I pray, confess, and repent. I am more gentle when I confess like the tax collector I try every morning to wake up and say the ancient Jesus prayer before I get out of bed. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That'll make you gentle. Second, fast. It's amazing how a much more gentle you are after a 48 or 72 hour fast. Third, read His Word. I am more gentle when God speaks to me. I put down the pen, turn everything off, and listen. Fourth, praising. Now I know some of you like to hike or take a walk in the beautiful areas that we have, the boskies around us, the mountains. Take a songbook. Even if you can't sing any better than me, you can sit on some rock where nobody can hear you. And you can sing. Read a psalm out loud. Raise your hands. If you can't do that, turn your palms over. You can do that in your room or study before you go to work. 
spend some time on your knees. I am more gentle when I recognize, as the old Rudy movie used to say, there is a God and I'm not it. Fifth, spend some time in silence. I'm a contemplative and some of you are. I'm convinced Jesus was. You just can't pray for that many things as much as he did. I think he sat there in silence with his father. We live in a noisy world. We are noisy. We as evangelicals come in and we fill every moment with sound. So we have to make special time to be silent. And when you are silent, don't pray discursively about anything. Don't praise. Don't read. Just sit there or kneel in silence. The great judge needs to sit in silence before the, the judge needs to sit in front in silence of the great judge. The physicians need to sit in silence before the great physician. The mothers, the best they can, need to sit in silence before the person that gave us all life. We will be gentle when we just spend time with our lover, wasting time as we sit in class, not asking anything, not expecting anything. And finally, overcome. Getting the hell knocked out of you is one way to make you gentle. I chose the word intentionally. If you have not been blindsided in life, you will be. It may be a child that decides to try to commit suicide. It may be a baby that's not developing. A sickness that alters our life or even brings death. What do you do when you experience adversity? You can rage. You can blame God. You can quit church. You can self-medicate. You can isolate yourself. You can blame others. Or you can use these moments as transformative times. Cleaning the demons out of our lives. Helping us to cease majoring in minors and focus on what really is important in this limited time that we have left on earth. Use them to humble us. Take away our sense of self-arrogance and self-sufficiency. Adversity can, if we let it, make us gentle. Revelation promises everything to him that overcometh. Some of you have heard me say this before. A year from now, next Christmas, we'll all be changed. I will go through my annual Lent diet and I may lose a few pounds. I'll probably lose more hair. Maybe a son would get married. <laughs> the church will be changed. 
This room may not even be here. This may be the last time that I'm speaking from this spot. For all of us, change is inevitable. But will we be transformed? Will we be more gentle than we are today? Or will we, we just still be muddling through life, waiting for it to all be over? I do weddings. Some have been right here, including my daughters. And in the full-blown Christian weddings, I read from Ephesians 5, and I turn to the groom, and I said, love your wife. But then I turn to the bride, and I say to this usually strapping, strong young man, I say, you know what he wants more of you than anything in the world? Our imaginations run wild, but I said what he wants is your respect. Before I became a judge, Jan and I were dressing one morning in our bathroom-bedroom combination. And she said, I admire you because you walk the talk. She hasn't said that recently or since. We can use this time of Advent, this time of Christmas, not just to be a busy time, not just to be an overwhelming time as it feels like at times, but it can be a time in which we are transformed. I want to ask you if you'll join me in this Advent season of praying, of fasting, as hard as it is, of praising, of silence, of overcoming, letting God speak to us. If you haven't been baptized, that's where the transformation starts. But if you need the prayers of this congregation or the elders to just seek ye first the kingdom of God. Come. Let's see if we can be more gentle a year from now. So we stand and sing.